This is the Self-Help Place podcast, the show that provides real self-help for everyone. Created and hosted by Dan Dyson. Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to the Self-Help Place podcast. This is episode 10, and today's subject is quite an unusual one. Today, I'm going to be talking about what Buddhist monks taught me about how to deal with your own mind, especially anxiety. So around three years ago, I stayed at a Buddhist monastery here in England for a week. It was the Forest Hermitage, which is a branch monastery um, of the Thai forest tradition. Back around the 1960s, 70s, a very famous Thai monk called Ajahn Chah, he formed a monastery called Wat Pong Pa Pong in the Ubon Ratachani province in northeast Thailand. And... They branched out throughout the world in different areas like England, America, uh, parts of Europe and uh, other places. And the idea was to introduce as many people in the West to Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism. And Theravada means doctrine of the elders. It's one of the oldest, it is the oldest school of Buddhism. And in these monasteries, you can go and stay for retreats. Western people can come and ordain as monks themselves. Um, and it was really a good education to the world on meditation and the values of the Buddha's teachings. Now, the first thing I'll mention is Buddhism is very, very misunderstood. And I guess that's what drew me to Buddhism at an early age, is that people really didn't know what was being taught, or they knew, but they had a different version of what the Buddha taught. So there's three main schools of Buddhism. There's Theravada, which means doctrine of the elders. Um, there's Mahayana, which is the Buddhism you probably see nowadays in Tibet and Japan with Zen. Mahayana means the great vehicle. Uh, and there's Vajrayana, which is I mean, as far as I know, I think that is only in certain parts of China and Tibet and things like that. Um, now, they're all three different schools of Buddhism and they all teach very, very different things. So what I wanted to know was what the Buddha actually taught. What was the closest to what he he taught about meditation and lifestyle and things like that? And that I found in Theravada Buddhism. So the doctrine of the elders, the oldest school of Buddhism there is. So within Theravada Buddhism is where we'll find this Thai forest edition. And as the name suggests, it was formed in the forests and jungles of Thailand in the late 1800s and early 1900s by a monk named Ajahn Mun. And one of his disciples was this monk called Ajahn Chah, who really popularized the Thai forest edition to the world. And now Ajahn Cha was a very famous meditation master. He was very much revered by his country and the King or Queen of Thailand. He died in 1992, but he left his disciples and teachings and monasteries behind. Now you can Google Ajahn Chah and you will find his teachings. Um, and these teachings inspired me a lot as a teenager, particularly as a meditation practitioner myself. They really helped with my practice. So I thought it was finally time to experience life in these monasteries and I was very curious about it. Now these monasteries are very very strict and for good reason. When the Buddha originally laid down um, the rules and code of conduct for the monks um, he laid down 227 of them which is a tremendous amount of rules but the whole idea of 
being a monastic, for being a monk or a nun, it is to create a perfect environment to meditate and to help others and teach others do the same. So I decided to stay at the Forest Hermitage because it was actually the closest branch monastery to me. I live in the East Midlands here in the UK and sadly the monasteries are actually quite far from me. So as a teenager I had little to no chance of getting to them actually considering how expensive public transport it actually is here. So I headed down to the Forest Hermitage and I began my one week stay there. Now let me tell you, staying in a monastery is not easy. I would pretty much say it was the hardest thing I've ever done, um, but also the most useful thing I've ever done. Three years later, I'm still feeling the positive effects of that one week. The reason why staying in a monastery is so difficult is because you have to abide by eight precepts. Now, precepts are kind of like rules, but I don't like to use the word rule because rule to me is um, kind of insinuates that it's something that's forced upon you rather than you voluntarily voluntarily take. So, but with, with, with these precepts, it's more like, you know, you're staying here, this is our code of conduct, please follow kind of thing. It's, so yeah, you could say they're rules, but they're, they're more precepts, which is the name I'm going to use them from now on. So there are eight. Now, with, with uh, any committed Buddhist, the first five precepts are things they take anyway. And then when they stay in a monastery, they take on a further three. So I'll just go through the five normal quote-unquote precepts. The first one is harmlessness. So not killing, not intentionally taking the life of any living creature. That's number one. Um, number two is trustworthiness. So not taking anything which isn't given. So no stealing, essentially. Uh, number three is celibacy. Now, um, in I think for lay people, so people who aren't monastics, um, I think the rule is to refrain from sexual misconduct. But in a monastery, it's total celibacy, so refraining from any kind of sexual activity. Don't quote me on that. I think I think that is the way it goes. But for, in a monastery, I definitely know there's no sexual activity of any kind, which you know I guess that's common sense. Number four is right speech. So avoiding false, abusive, or malicious speech and idle speech. Notice how it's not as simple as just not lying. It's more to do with any speech which is unskillful. The thing about Buddhist practice is it's based on skillful and unskillful means. You know, what is for the betterment for yourself and other people and what holds you back and damages yourself and other people. So uh, one thing to note there. So yeah, avoid any poor use of speech. And number five is sobriety. So not taking any kind of intoxicants, so no drink, no drugs, things like that. And again, remember that these precepts are in place to aid your meditation practice and your livelihood, you know. Um, so although they sound very, very similar to other religions, um, rules and codes of conduct from morality, um, Buddhism has a slightly different angle on it as well. It's what will help me and other people and what will take things away. So, for example, killing isn't just, you know, morally wrong, it's also unskillful. You make enemies, um, you harm other people, it, it um, reduces and eliminates your, um, the good effects of meditation practice because you're racked with all this, with the guilt and also, um, you know, in Buddhist perspective, it's not good karma, which was something we may come on to a little bit later on. So it's more of a skillful or unskillful means. So the further three 
precepts, which are the really hard ones, let me tell you, <laughs> uh, which is the extra three I had to take on, um, were, the, were the following. So the number six was renunciation of food after midday. So we in this monastery in particular, you only have one meal a day and it must be eaten before noon. Now, I did actually stay in a monastery in Thailand that had two meals a day, one at breakfast and one just before noon, and then that was it. But you can't eat after noon. That's it. That's all you've got. Um, you have that one meal. Uh, number seven is restraint. Now, again, this is another particularly difficult one. As a musician, um, so I'm not you're not allowed to watch movies or play music or have any other entertainment or you have to dress modest, mo- uh, modestly as well. I can't even speak today. And uh, you can't use any kind of electronic device. Um, and again, that is not... I say like you're not allowed to do this, not allowed to do that. That creates quite a dim view. But again, the sole, pra- the sole purpose of being in a monastery is to practice meditation, and those are distractions. So it's kind of common sense, that one. And finally, alertness. And this was... I would say this one was the most difficult for me. You have to refrain from overindulgence in sleep. So in this monastery, I actually slept on the floor. Um, in some monasteries, the one I stayed in Thailand had a wooden bed on a very, very thin layer of like mattress. I don't know if you'd even call it a mattress, to be honest. But again, overindulgence in sleep um, hinders meditation practice. So again, or I'm, I'm telling you the perspective on the start because I, I hear a lot of people go through these rules, quote unquote, and then they go, oh, what a horrible way to live. Who on earth will do that in their right mind? And, you know, something I thought as well, when I first read them, I was like, who on earth would do that? But you have to understand why they're in place. It's for to aid meditation practice. So they were the eight precepts I took on when staying in this monastery. So I arrive and the novice monk uh, greets me at the door and shows me around. It was just before the first meal time actually, where you offer the meal to the monks. Uh, the, so you have like lay pe- the lay people, the lay guests. Um, these are people outside the monastery coming to offer food every day. So monks, they, they can't grow their own food and they have to live, um, they have to rely on the community to support them. And this is a tradition, it's called Bindabhat. It's a Thai word and it it's the uh, arms, they do arms round, they do arms walks where they, they go around and they collect food from the local village. And it's a tradition that's been upheld for over 2,000 years since monks were in existence. Um, and the idea behind it is, um, as far as I'm aware anyway, so the monks would offer food for the mind while the lay supporters uh, would offer food for their bodies, essentially, you know, it's a, and it's quite beautiful, actually, I mean, it, we're in a society, I mean, particularly in the Western society I grew up in, it was all like, oh, you know, beggars were always looked down on, and things like that, because, you know, oh, scrounger, get your own stuff, like, make your own way, stiff up a lip kind of thing, but with the monks, it's it's different, you know, they, they, they offer value to the the community they help them with their problems they help them with their meditation practice in return they support them and feed them and keep them you know keep them established i guess um so i arrived just in time for um for the food to be set out they set off a lot earlier to do the arms round they set off very early hours of the morning to do it but i arrived just before the midday meal uh was due to start or the pre-midday meal was due to start should i say so yeah, I got in and I had my meal and I was, uh, to be honest, it was, uh, I knew what I was in for for this next week. I was like, oh, I'm going to miss these meals. Anyway, 
So I had my meal. I was shown what my work chores were because, again, the idea was I help them with the monastery. They help me with my meditation practice. So over the course of the week, I did things like um, I did some gardening. Um, I pulled up, uh, I pulled up and replanted trees for one of the teachers um, there. So there were three uh, monks living there. There was the main teacher, um, who was I. He was the first Western disciple of Ajahn Chah. He'd been in Rho for over fifty years. He was an Englishman, actually. They were all English, actually. Um, the his student was a monk who who was the one who invited me his name was Ajahn Manapo uh, you can look him up as well um, he was the main teacher there he's been in robe since he was 18 I think he's been in robe over 20 years I think uh, again don't quote me on that one but he'd been a monk quite a long time since 2000 I think um, and then they had a novice monk uh, who I, I, his name escapes me sadly um, but he was he was there as well and they also had a, a student there. He was uh, what's known, I think, as a salmonera, and he was one who was their main helper. He was a white-robed, um, sh- uh, head-shaved monk, and he would be helping round with all with all the the chores and things. Because essentially, the, the the further you go into monkhood, so you go as a salmonera to help out, then you turn into a novice, and then you become a normal monk, and then from there you can choose to be a teacher, an ajan. So like the term ajan cha. Ajahn means teacher, and I think you have to be a monk for at least 10 years to be a teacher. So you had all the different ranks of monks in there as well. And then there was yours truly, just staying staying there in my time, helping out any way I could and being taught and having a meditation practice. So I had a little wooden hut in the forest where they all, uh, where everyone, everybody lived. Um, and in this hut was quite simply, there was a pillow on the floor, uh, there was a picture of Ajahn Mun, who was one of the founders of the tradition, and an alarm clock, and that was that was it. And I had a brush as well, I think, a couple of other things, but that was it. That was the floor in the hut I was due to sleep on. There was a little heater as well when it got cold in winter, which was nice. And also outside the hut, I had a quite a long erected wooden path. It was a, uh, a meditation path for walking meditation. So a typical day would go like this. I'd I'd wake up around 4.35 a.m., I think, and I'd do about an hour's meditation. So I'd do walking meditation and sitting in meditation. I already have my own... I already follow the meditation practice of the Thai Forest Edition, so that was quite normal for me. And then around 6 a.m., we'd have what's called the morning puja, which is a... Um, you'd have the morning chanting. So you do meditation and you do chanting with the monks in the main hall. After that, you'd do chores. So I would do... Again, as I mentioned before, I would do things like gardening. I also um, did did like brass polishing as well. I cleaned the windows. I vacuumed the place. Um, I did a lot, some woodwork kind of stuff. I helped with um, with uh, the carpent. I'm not I'm not much of a carpenter, but I did some kind of um, carpet carpentry related work around the front the front of the monastery and uh, things like that. So. Uh, you did that for a couple of hours, and then you'd be called in for the pre-midday meal around eleven o'clock, I think, where they would, and it was very, very respectful. It was done in a very certain way. You had to like offer it out, and then you'd sit and wait for the main teacher to come. Uh, the monks would be fed first, and then once the monks are fed, you then take your pick and you you fill your plate basically with as much as possible before midday because you know you're not going to have much food for the rest of the day so I just filled it with it with whatever I could actually there was quite a lot of food there um it kept me sustains which is fine 
Um, so the first three days, I have to admit, were the hardest. The 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 sleeping on the floor, the 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 meal. Strangely, I was okay with. I didn't get hungry that much, but you could eat, you could drink as much as you like throughout the day. Water, tea, uh, what have you. You could do that. That's fine. But it's the food. Uh, it was quite weird at first. So it took me a good two or three days to get used to it. Also, no distractions. And I'll tell you something that is harder than it seems because. Uh, it's not really boredom that's the problem. It's more you have to face yourself. You've got no distractions. Every single thing that comes into your head, every mood, every feeling, you have to experience 100%. And there is no escape from it 24-7 for a good week. And that's very, very difficult, but has more benefits you could possibly imagine. So to come to the main points of today's podcast, so what do they actually teach me there? Now, at this time... I was, um, for anyone who's listened to this podcast before, um, they know I have an issue with anxiety. Now, for any new listeners, um, I was diagnosed with OCD at 21 years old, and I've had a problem with anxiety ever since. So the the motivation for me to stay in this monastery was due to having quite a bad time with anxiety, because even with the therapy I had, and I, I didn't keep up the self-help um, which is again point of this blog is to keep up that self-help um, and of course I kind of relapsed with my OCD and anxiety so I thought I need another way for me to get treatment without being put on a waiting list to get some therapy or counseling I thought maybe there was an alternative way from something that I know very 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 well so I decided I knew you know because this, this monastery today is very difficult and it's not recommended for people who are quite vulnerable when it comes to severe depression or sev- quite severe anxiety, different types of anxiety. Um, there's certain types of mental illness which is just not recommended for. Uh, this one though, I uh, this monastery stay, I felt I was okay for. I knew it would be hard but I knew it wouldn't be impossible to do for, uh, for myself. So... There I was doing my meditation practice and it is quite hard because your mind gets distracted all the time and you just and my back was hurting because I had to sit I'm not I'm not the most flexible person I'm really inflexible and and sitting doing meditation all day really takes it out of you my back was just in pieces it was very very difficult the walking meditation is what I love the most Now it came to the point where I really wanted to know something about anxiety now what the teacher Ajahn Manapo he came to me and was like basically asking how it was all going so I said it was you know it was going well enough I've had experience in meditation before of course it was difficult but I also mentioned the anxiety and I thought you know what it's fun. I've never really known how to deal with anxiety properly could you so I asked him could you could you teach me something and he says yeah if you and he basically said listen and I will I will I'll teach you and I was like brilliant okay and what he said next changed my perspective. It really did. It, it it changed my world around because he told me something that I didn't think had anything to do with the problem of anxiety. So what he said was this. When you're feeling anxious, it's actually nothing to do with what's going up on in your head. So you might be worrying about something. The cause of it is not necessarily those thoughts that you're thinking. He says, pay attention to your bodily reaction to it. Once you've paid attention, once you've paid attention to that, it then helps with the anxiety, and then then you can tackle it. If it gets too strong, pull away from it. You know, don't tackle it if it's too strong, but focus on your bodily reaction, and then from there 
you can then look to observe it from your mind. And he taught me a three-point exercise, which he actually used for pain as well, which I'll go on to. The first step is when you feel the anxiety, focus whereabouts in the body you feel that sensation. So, you know, for me, it was quite tight in my chest. So I'd, I'd say I'd say to myself in my head, okay, I feel it in my chest, you know, really concentrating on that feeling. The next step was to ask yourself, how big is this sensation? So I'd look, okay, well, it, it's quite, it's the sizes, it's going around the chest, kind of going into the stomach. I actually tried to picture like a shape in my head from the feeling while I was getting. I was like, okay, yeah, okay, it's, it's, it's that big. And then the third question you ask yourself is, is it growing or is it shrinking? So I looked at that and I went, okay, well, it's kind of growing around this this air, but it's kind of shrinking towards the bottom. Then I realized what was what was happening. What was happening was my mind wasn't wasn't pushing away this feeling of anxiety. You know, what we do with anxiety, we don't want it. We push it away and we we fight against it. And it causes this friction. So what I was doing is that I was very slowly becoming curious to this sensation. I was accepting it because I wanted to, it was almost like I wanted to bring it in because I wanted to know whether it was shrinking or whether it was growing or how big it was. And all of a sudden it just, my perspective just changed. I went all this time, I've just been feeding, feeding this anxiety and pushing it away. And that's when I realized something I read actually about one of the Buddha's teachings of Tanha, which means craving. And it's one of his noble truths. You can look up on the four noble truths of the Buddha, which is one of his main pinnacle teachings. And that was um, the the cause of your suffering is Tanha, which is this craving. Uh, and craving's not just like, oh, I crave like a cake or I crave some chocolate right now. Craving is a very deep, deep-seated craving of craving to exist, craving to have this, craving your life to be a certain way. But on the flip side of craving is, uh, it's, craving is a, is a, is a double-edged sword. The other side of that is wanting not to have something. And the problem is where people confuse that is that you're still wanting because you're wanting to not have something. So with my anxiety, that's exactly what I was doing. Like I was, it was almost like an addiction, which is something I read in a later article. Uh, I was addicted to the feeling of relief. I loved that feeling of everything's all all okay, everything's certain, and life is good. And that is such a euphoric feeling that I was addicted to it. But it's so dangerous because there is no such thing as certainty, you know. And that was a high I was constantly chasing. I I, I suddenly felt like I was addicted. I, I was an addict. Um, and what I was doing was anxiety, which is a perfectly normal, acceptable human emotion, was coming in, and straight away I was wrestling with it and trying to throw it out. But the problem is, I was just making things worse. I was just making it more of a thing because I was still wanting it, but in the sense that I was wanting not to have it. And that's quite confusing to w- when I thought about it at first. But the more it really sank in, the more I realized, ah, okay. I was resisting, and as the famous saying goes, I've said a few times in these podcasts, what you resist persists. So that's exactly what was happening. The anxiety kept persisting. So I took that away with me, and I really practiced hard. I practiced as hard as I could not, and and the thing is with practice, you have to not do it too hard uh, to the point where it it, it just becomes no progress because you're creating so much friction in your head and you're forcing yourself so much that you can't relax, and you have to get that balance between relaxing and being alert in order for progress to happen and I remember there was this one point I got to after three it was the next three days after that 
I started getting used to sleeping on the floor, as, as hard as that sounds. I got used to everything and I just felt better. I just felt like I could handle everything. But when you're looking at your mind 24-7, you start to look a little bit deeper. You start to notice things you perhaps didn't notice before. In one of the early podcasts I mentioned, I, I used my own analogy of the leftover pizza in the fridge. You know, when you don't meditate, um, you see the the pizza of your mental habits, so to speak, as amazing and it looks great and you think it's going to do you a lot of good. But then when you look carefully at this pizza, it's covered in maggots and it's horrible. And the first thing you do is that you throw it away because there's no use to come out of it. And it's the same with mental habits. When you first look at them without any real insight, you think, oh, that's great. You know, you look, you get angry and it feels good to get that anger out your system. It feels good to like, you know, curse on people and maybe even in some cases be violent. You know, it feels good to get out of your system, right? And, you know, we all, that's, that's normal. But then when you really look at anger and you realize that it's rotten, it's ugly behavior, it doesn't do any good because you notice you, you get angry, someone's cut you off on the road, you you curse them and you blast them with all sorts of things, but then you get home and you you calm down and you go, actually, that, I felt a bit stupid for that. That's exactly what's happening. You know, you're realizing, you, you, you've recentered and you, you've come to realize that that was actually not good behavior. It was there was, no, there was There was nothing good to come out of that. It was just your own release. And that's what me- the meditation did for, did for me. You know, it, it, it looked at what my mind was grasping to. You know, what was I looking for? What was I, what was it about anxiety that made me hang on to it? I started to realize that the only reason I kept being anxious, despite really not wanting to be anxious, is that deep down, actually, as much as I wasn't wanting anxiety and pushing it away like a normal, acceptable human emotion, what I was realizing was I still somewhere down deep in the depths, I was clinging on to anxiety because I believed it helped me. It protected me in some way. I felt like I had this over, as typical of an OCD sufferer, I had an overinflated um, sense of responsibility for my own actions and for making sure not to hurt other people. So what I was doing was I was hanging on to that anxiety because I believed it protected me. I truly deep down believed, and it took a lot to get to that point to really realize this was happening, that this was a very, very deep clinging you know, there it is, the tanha, the craving, there was a craving, there was a clinging to this idea that this anxiety helped me somehow. So with a bit of practice and just being with awareness and looking into it, you can't just go, okay, mind, get rid of that. It's no use to me. You, Your mind's not stupid. And it's the funniest, it's the funniest thing I've ever said, probably, because <laughs> your mind's not stupid. But um, my point with that is your mind doesn't believe you. You can't tell your mind, oh, don't worry because it feels horrible. Everything will be fine. You know, if you don't believe it, if you tell yourself everything will be fine, you don't believe it. What your mind's doing is saying, look, that's all well and good you're saying that, but I'm trying to protect you here. You have to show your mind that it's no good. That it makes no difference. And what you realize uh, is, and I think this is a, I think this is a some kind of movie quote actually. Worrying only ensures that you suffer twice. And what I do. In, in a meditation practice, even without thinking about it, I would go through worrying scenarios in my head um, and I would realize that if the worst happened, it would actually feel better than the anxiety I had of the situation, and which is weird because I realize our biggest fear is not knowing. 
So when you're worrying about something that could happen, it's unknown. But then when that happens and you realize it's actually not so bad, and even if the worst does happen and it's, yeah, it's horrible, it's, you don't, the anxiety is gone because it's happened, it's done. So really, and I, I, I also found that the more I worried about something, the worse that outcome would be if it did happen. So worrying had no use. Not only did it not do anything to prevent a scenario, um, which is also known as magic thinking when you think worrying will protect you somehow. Um, not only did it do that, it actually ensured that that worst case scenario was worse by using the worry. So there was no, I, sh- I was kind of showing my mind internally that there was absolutely no use worrying about certain situations like there was nothing it doesn't doesn't protect me because if I worried about it and then it happened it feels 10 times worse than I didn't expect it to happen it was more of a shock in a weird way I mean that's that's me anyway and it just the worry did nothing to protect me the stuff the thing still happened so I was facing a very deeply ingrained habit of worry and for the first time my own mind um sort of saw that and went oh so there's no use to hang on to, hanging on to this. And something at that moment happened. And I had the best night's sleep on the floor I've ever had because I just let go. And that's what let go truly is. I've experienced what it is to let go. And it's not done by willpower. You can't willfully let go and tell your mind something. It happens automatically when you see that thing has no use to you. And it's something I've mentioned on a previous podcast. So I had the best sleep I ever had. The next day I got up for meditation and just the color, as cliche as it sounds, the world did just seem to have more color in it. I finally just let go of this, this thing that just kept me worrying, and it, and I think that was the cause of my relapse. I was constantly craving this relief. I was craving, you know, to have a solution, pushing away this anxiety. Please don't happen, and thinking that it was going to protect me somehow. Well, the thing wouldn't happen because I'm worrying too much about it. Did nothing. Made no difference whatsoever. And then for the so for the remainder of the monastery stay, I kept on doing the meditation, and it came to the time when I was due to leave. And um, so I packed up my very limited possessions. You know, I had to wear all white and didn't have much on me. Got home, and it was a strange experience being at home. If you listen to um, the previous, uh, our regular guest, Dave Norris, I talked about how exhausting it was to actually open up social media again after experiencing this piece for a week. But it, yeah, it was it was great. I mean, the, the the equilibrium of meditation I'd built up over that week was still that way. I remember going into town the next day and I was just aware of everything. It was I mean, not in a far-fetched way. I was aware of everything in myself and every step I took. Um, and it was great because as soon as you had any annoyance or impatience or anything like that come up, you just, your mind just goes, whoop, let's have a look at this first. Your mind was like an, my mind was like a nightclub. It was, there was a bouncer at the door. He was checking the IDs. And as soon as any worries or any impatience came to the door, I was like, ah, let's see your ID. Nope. Sorry. You have no use here. It stopped it before it manifests. And that was just the most incredible thing I experienced because you really have to experience that to believe it. Um, on a side note, it actually was weird to sleep in a bed again. I actually carried on sleeping on the floor for the next few days because I couldn't actually sleep in the bed because it was too soft. I had to actually carry on sleeping on the floor and that was just surreal to me, uh, really. So that was my week experience. And again, as I mentioned, three years on, I've never been back to that point 
of feeling terrible. Like I, I went to the monastery because I kept relapsing with my anxiety. I kept, you know, um, going back to those horrible states where I had to like quit things and had to go home and start all over again. But that that stay at that monastery and what I learned from that, from facing myself and facing that storm that everyone's so afraid to do, when you come out the other side, your life might just be that much changed. One week, three years later, I'm still here and I am still appreciate every single second I spent there. And I hope to go back someday once this lockdown's over, <laughs> because time recording, we're still in the COVID-19 lockdown. Anyone listening for the future, appreciate the... Um, the time and space and the fact you can go and meet people, appreciate what you have. Um, but yeah, I wanted to share this with everybody today. Um, if you are interested in that particular monastery or other brands, you can check that out. Google Ajahn Shah, the Thai Forest Edition, or even the Forest Her- Hermitage. Um, I think there's a website called Forest Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A. And Sangha is the uh, word for a community of monks. Um, and they list all a directory of all the monasteries they have in different countries. Um, so wherever you're listening from, you can check that out. Um, it was very, very difficult. So if you are planning on or looking to possibly stay there, just be careful. You know, if you are suffering from quite um, a considerably serious mental condition, um, get advice from your uh, from your doctor, uh, from your counsellor or whoever you speak to about this and make sure you'd be okay to go if you are interested. If you're not doing interested in doing anything extreme as I am, don't worry, you don't have to. That was a choice I made because I already knew exactly what to expect in the monastery. I knew it would be hard. But you can do retreats, which are a lot easier. I think you do. I've actually never done a retreat. I've just done, I've just stayed in monasteries, to be quite honest. I stayed in one in Thailand as well, which is a very similar experience to what I did, but I only, I only did four days there. Um, but you can do retreats. They have retreat calendars on these on these same monastery websites. Um, uh, I do actually have a blog as well, how to get started in meditation. So you can view that on the website, theselfhelpplace.com. And you can just see how you get started. In future episodes, I will talk a bit more about meditation and how you can get yourself into that and how to keep that as consistent as you can, really. Um, meditation consistency is quite difficult, but... Um, if you are looking to start, a retreat might also be the best place to start with that. All right, everyone. Well, thank you very much for listening. So just in conclusion of today's uh, episode, what I learned really from being in a monastery and what I learned from Buddhist monks is how, how to handle anxiety. It's more to do with your bodily reaction, calming your body down and then being able to tackle it from there. And the key thing I learned from this was whenever I get that anxiety once once it was once my body was calmed down i could look at the anxiety more closely and found out that i was just clinging on to it for a reason that wasn't there well like, like i mentioned you know i was i was hoping it would protect me somehow and that's exactly where the anxiety came from and that all started with taking care of my body first you know with that with relaxation deep breathing meditation is well deep breathing anyway but then looking very carefully into my mind without any kind of judgment and then from there, you can start to, things start to come out at you. You know, your mind starts to point things out like randomly. And it was an amazing experience. And I'd highly recommend it to anyone all to do any kind of retreat. But I learned a lot. I am forever grateful for those, um, for the monks that stayed there. I honor them quite significantly for what they do. They give up quite a lot of, you know, what we consider to be a quote-unquote fun life for the practice of meditation and they teach other people and they did me a whole world of good.
and I am very appreciative of that. So, all right, thank you for listening. Um, stay tuned. I release these pod. Try to release these podcasts every Tuesday and Friday. Um, on Friday, we'll be having our regular guest back, Dave Norris, to share some uh, some more insights. I guess some more um interesting content with you and we'll see where that goes so everyone take care check out the website i have a subscribe form on there you can check that you can check that out and if you subscribe i will send these any new content uh, content even directly to your inbox so stay tuned thank you very much take care and bye-bye thank you for tuning in please visit the website theselfhelpplace.com for more information